If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up uh, with us to the book of Genesis, and uh, maybe chapter 10 would be a good place to turn. 10 and 11 is kind of where we'll, we'll jump in in just a moment. Today we are going to be uh, on the third of the six covenants that we plan to really focus on, the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, this is obviously a central covenant to the whole storyline of the Bible. Abraham is a fundamental figure of Scripture, and uh, there's no understanding the New Testament really without this covenant. This just builds uh, even more clearly on what's come before and points us to Christ in some amazing ways. So Greg, can you pray for us, and then we will dive in for today. Yeah, let's pray. Father... What a, a privilege you've given us yet again to gather together as a church family and study your word. Lord, we pray for uh, all the Sunday school classes right now, Lord, that you would uh, work by your spirit through your word to uh, teach us, to correct us, reprove us, and train us in righteousness, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you have for us. Uh, Lord, help us grow in our, our grasp of the Bible's story, of how covenants are central to that, uh, and form the basic structure of, of, of Scripture. Lord, help Mark and I uh, just faithfully handle the Word, accurately handle it as uh, Paul told Timothy. And Lord, we just commit our hearts and minds to you for these few moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, just to remind y'all of the, one of the basic promises of the gospel that we've discussed, uh, especially last Sunday, Genesis 3.15. And it's not too hard to remember because it's not far from John 3.16. So you got Genesis 3.15, which is sort of the, uh, the first gospel presentation. It is the first gospel presentation in all of Scripture. And you remember in this promise uh, that's on the screen here, you've got uh, two lines of descent. You have seed or offspring of the serpent, which is referring to human beings who act like their father, the devil which would ultimately be unbelievers. And in a sense, we are all born in that state, right? We're all born in that seed of the serpent condition and the Lord rescues us from it. And then you also have the seed of the woman. And this is the line of promise. It's leading to Jesus, but it includes those who are true believers. And the hostility between these two lines is going to mark the entire uh, course of scripture. So whether it's Cain versus Abel, uh, whether it's you know, Ishmael versus Isaac, uh, whether it's Joseph versus his brothers, whether it's the people in Egypt versus Pharaoh and the Egyptians, well, and you could just go on and on, whether it's Jesus versus the Pharisees, et cetera, et cetera, you're always seeing this animosity where the unbelieving group is hostile toward the believing group. Remember, the believing group is not meant to be hostile to the unbelieving group, but because they speak the truth, they're going to receive hostility from the unbelieving line, and we trace that through. And remember Tom Schreiner, uh, this quote from last week with the covenant with Noah? God pledged in this covenant with Noah that humanity will not be annihilated before the promise of Genesis 3.15 is realized. So the Noahic covenant means God is going to sustain the physical created order, seasons, festivals, all the things that we see, they will be sustained until finally uh, redemptive history is complete. And then just to kind of jump ahead for today, Schreiner says this, the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15 then would come through Abraham's family even though Abraham did not deserve God's mercy. So this is, this is the Abrahamic promise. The seed of Eve, the seed of the woman who's going to crush Satan is going to come through, yes, Eve's line, but it traces down through Noah. And yes, it's coming through Noah's line, but now it's going to get more specific still. It's going to come through Abraham's family. Through Abraham and his offspring, God is going to restore blessing to the nations. Those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. But we're going to see God rebuilding and restructuring uh, much, of that, much, of what, much of what was lost. 
Greg, any opening thoughts here about the Abrahamic covenant before we get any, any further into Genesis? I have a few. Uh, one is we have to remember God's plan for the nations did not start with Abraham. Um, that's one of the, the key points of differences that we've mentioned and will continue to mention between what we're arguing and the dispensational perspective. I mean, obviously, we agree Abraham is vital to what God is doing. You can't make sense of, of God's plan. Um, I mean, God is setting up the, uh, the whole genealogical line of the Messiah through this man and, and, and a specific line of his descendants. Um, and to be reckoned Abraham's children, as Paul says in the New Testament, means you're also children of God, you're heirs of everything God has promised. So Abraham is absolutely essential to, the, to the God, God's gospel plan, to the, to the plan of redemption and salvation. But we have to keep Abraham in the larger context, as, as we've tried to do with knowing everything, is in light of what God did in the garden. Like Adam is God's promise to Eve and to Adam of, of a coming Savior. That is the governing promise. Yeah. Um, and that has to provide the backdrop for our understanding of God's promise to Abraham. Um, God's plan was never just for one nation and one people. It was always for the whole world. Um, and if we keep that in mind, then I think we get, we're positioning ourselves to better understand uh, and appreciate all that God is doing through Abraham. Yes, and, and at the risk of repetition, I know I've said this before multiple times, and again on the screen here, a simple definition of the kingdom of God, God's, I think many of you probably remember this by now, God's people in God's place, under God's rule, and experiencing God's blessing. And just again, just to keep this kind of, this basic idea in mind, remember in the, in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve are God's people, obviously. The place of God, unmistakably, is Eden. And uh, are they under God's rule? Yes, be fruitful, don't eat from the tree, fill the earth and subdue it. God's rule is coming. And are they experiencing God's blessing, Adam and Eve? Oh my goodness, yes, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And then when they sin, Adam and Eve, at least temporarily, are not God's people, right? They're kicked out of God's place with the cherubim guarding the way back to the garden. They've disobeyed God's rule. And now what happened to the blessing? It has turned into curse, right? There's a curse on the world, but God promises to restore the blessing. And so again here, uh, through the seed of the woman, also through the seed of Abraham, we're gonna have God's people, the seed of Abraham. God has promised a place, the promised land where they will be under God's rule. And this is going to be most clearly seen uh, through, the, through the commandments of Moses and the, the things that the Lord will bring through Sinai. But does God give Abraham some instructions right off the bat? Leave your father's land, your homeland, and go to the place I will show you. God's rule is being established right now in Abraham's life. And Abraham, amazingly, is what? Obeying God. Remember, Hebrews says he went out not knowing where he was going because he was doing this by faith in God. And is there a promise of blessing with the Abrahamic covenant? Yes, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. So just keep this kind of in the background of our minds as we kind of move forward with where, where the story is heading. Let me make one comment yeah. on that just so I make, we're making a connection here because one of, the, one of the connections that progressive covenantalism brings is between God's kingdom and God's covenants, okay? And so you're only going to find God's kingdom in effect where God's covenant is in place. Like in the garden, obviously, You've got the creation covenant there, and you can see, as Mark was just saying, the structure of the kingdom, but it's tied to that covenant. And then you move on to Abraham, and you want to know, well, where are you going to find the kingdom of God on earth in Abraham's time? Mm -hmm. Well, it's where God is in covenant with his people, and that is where Abraham, that's where the covenant with Abraham comes into play. God, the covenant kind of serves as the charter of the kingdom or something like that. You could probably find a lot of different words for it, but God's kingdom is always tied 
to God's covenant, and never are the two separated. And we'll, we'll draw out an, um, an important contrast of dispensationalism down the road with that. Um, but wherever God's kingdom is, is also where God's covenant with his people is. Okay, keep that connection in mind because the two were never meant to be separated. Where there's the kingdom, there's the covenant. Where there's covenant, there's kingdom. And so you always want to say, how can I find God's kingdom on earth? Well, where are the people that God is in covenant with? That's why the church, in, a, in essence, can be called like, like an outpost of the kingdom, uh, kind of a forward base of the kingdom, if you will. Because why? In the church, you have people in a right covenant relationship with God. That's why Paul can say you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into what? The kingdom of his beloved son. Um, so the church isn't the entire kingdom. It's, it's, it's where the kingdom is expressed. It's where the people of the kingdom are. But if you want to make sense of, uh, you know, because we hear a lot about advancing God's kingdom in the world. Well, what does that actually look like? Well, it's not separate from the church. Like the kingdom is tied to the church because the church is the covenant people of God. And so, again, we're going to unpack that more, and hopefully that'll make more sense as we go through it. But keep that connection in mind. The God's kingdom is always tied to God's covenant. And so there's not like an official king, like a human king at this point. But if God is the one who's in charge, he's the one who's ruling, then that's where the kingdom is because God himself is always a king. That's very helpful. So Genesis 10, uh, we'll, uh, we're going to move pretty quickly through some verses. But if you look at verse 32, the end of the chapter... Remember, we're tracing through Noah's family still from last week. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, skipping ahead. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 11.1, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So now we're at Babel. Verse, look at verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top of the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, you notice here a couple of fundamental problems. First of all, let's not miss the obvious. The Hebrew word uh, Babel is the word Babylon. It's the exact same word. So you could very well translate this, the Tower of Babylon. This is, this is the, the beginnings of the animosity we see, the, 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 the bad name that is hanging over this part of the world at this time, which was Babylon, okay? This is the beginnings of the kingdom of Babylon that will become something much greater under Nebuchadnezzar since, uh, millennia after this. But this is, you're already getting a sense here. Moses is signaling under inspiration that this is a bad place. And so uh, they say, not let us make a name for God. They say, let us make a name for ourselves, right? Is this not the problem of all human beings from the womb? We want glory for us. We want a name for ourselves. We don't care about God's name. We care about our name, and we want to magnify and glorify ourselves. So we've, we, we are trying to become like God in that sense. And then it says here, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. What's the, what's the mandate? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And these people say, first of all, we don't want to glorify God. We want to glorify ourselves. Second of all, we don't want to do what God said and be dispersed over the earth. We want to get together in a safe place, put up a big wall, and make a world-renowned uh, tower that's going to reach up to the heavens, and we want to kind of have this uh, power and prestige and safety and security. We don't want to do the very things God has commanded us to do. So verse 7, they say, come, let us go down, or God says, come, let us go down there and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them over the, uh, from there over the face of the whole earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So after Noah, the righteous man, do we still have major sin issues in the world? 
Absolutely we do. So God is going to, again, seek to save and restore humanity, and this time he's going to pick an unlikely individual. We're so used to Abraham, right? We, got, we know the kids' song about Father Abraham, and we're so used to, we love Abraham. If you're a kid growing up in church, you hear all about him, and that's wonderful. But he did not have a promising beginning, okay? Let's just remember here what's going on. If you look at 1127 of Genesis, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot, verse 29. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So just, just to remind you real quick here, a couple Old Testament texts to, to tell you who Abraham was. We are seeing on full display the doctrine of unconditional election right here. Okay, this is it once again in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9 says it like this, verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. So God selected, God chose sovereignly Abraham. He could have chosen any of a thousand people. He could have if he wanted to choose nobody. I mean, God, God could do what he wants, but God chose Abraham. And what was Abraham doing at the time of God's call? Some of you know this verse. It's the very end of Joshua. You know that verse, choose you this day whom you will serve? Right before that is said by Joshua, this is said, Joshua 24, 24 verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they, does they include Abraham? They, Abraham, his dad and his brother, they served other gods. So it wasn't like Abraham was out there going, man, I just, I want to worship the true God. God, please come meet with me. No, Abraham is worshiping pagan deities back in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is basically not far from Babylon. He's out there as a, as a rank pagan. And God says, if I want to save the world, I want to do it in a way that gives me the glory, not mankind. And so I'm going to pick the least promising person, a man who's married to a woman, worshiping idols who can't have children. And that's who I'm going to pick to create as many children as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea and to bless all the nations. The whole point here is not to glorify Abraham. Do you see that? The point is Abraham is not the guy you would have chosen for your, for, for, for your team here, but God chooses him so that God would get the glory in the transformation of Abraham's life and that God's name would be great. And then amazingly, God says he's going to make Abraham's name uh, great. Um, a, a contrast uh, between Abraham and uh, the tower, what happened at the Tower of Babel. Um, look back at chapter 11, uh, verse, uh, it's verse 3. This is something I had pointed out to me uh, when I was in seminary, and once you see it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, he says, And the people said to one another, Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Basically, the composition of what they're, they're putting on here, they were trying to make this tower waterproof. Now, why would they want to make a tower waterproof? Because they didn't trust God to keep His promise not to flood the world again. Um, and so everything about these, the humanity at the time of Babel is trying to make a name for itself, um, not doing what God said, and also not trusting what God had promised. They didn't believe God. They did not trust Him to keep His promise. And so you get to uh, chapter 12 when God calls Abram um, to go to the land of Canaan. One thing that is absolutely essential to notice here, uh, Hebrews 11.8 gives us the commentary. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance, 
and he went out not knowing where he was going. So he did not have all the details of how God was going to keep his promise, but he trusted God. And so it starts with, and I mean, I know we're going to get into this, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but you think about the call of God creating faith. We see that in Abraham right here um, in contrast to all of humanity at Babel. They, they are doing their own thing, going their own way, not trusting what God said. Here's one guy. He's a pagan worshiper. God calls him to leave and go to a new place. He doesn't, it all doesn't make sense, but he still obeys and follows. And so you see a contrast with Abraham's you know, faith here in chapter 12 as we get started into this and the lack of faith of all the people at Babel. It's just, I mean, and that goes back to the fact that what does Babylon symbolize in so many ways? It's a lack of faith in God, a lack of trust in God, wanting to build our own city, build our own name. Um, and God's people are marked by doing what God says, trusting his word, and leaving the rest to God. That's helpful. So here's the big moment here. Genesis 12, the first three verses, a massive moment in biblical history right here. It takes place around uh, 2000, is it 2000 BC, right? It was around, around the time of Abraham. So look at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families on the earth shall be blessed. Just to continue a point that Greg was just making, this is a perfect example of kingdom through covenant. Okay, this is the point you're just making a moment ago. Do you see all the elements of God's kingdom in this promise? Do you see people, place, rule, blessing? I mean, a nation involves people and place, right? So there's people, place. Is, there, is God going to establish his rule? Yes, you can see that, and that's going to become more clear as he commands Abraham and commands people what to do. And you see the blessing being restored here. Yes, so God is... Kingdom through covenant, the title that, that Gentry and Wellen have used in their book, th this is the kind of place you get this from. God is promising the elements of his kingdom, and he's promising it in a covenant to Abraham. So people, place, rule, and blessing are coming through a promise, a covenant God is making with Abraham. Is that kingdom through covenant? Yes. And that's going to be unpacked as we move forward in biblical history. But I, I think that's very clear in a text like this. And this is from, uh, this is from uh, John Salehammer. Uh, I just took a picture of the page because I didn't, I didn't have time to try to format that on a slide. So I took, I took a few pictures of his, of his book here. But just if you look at this, it's kind of interesting. So on, on here, you've got uh, a comparison of Noah and Abraham. Uh, John Salehammer, is, he was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School for a long time. He has passed away. He's in heaven now, but he wrote some amazing things, and he showed connections in the Old Testament that blew my mind. I, I remember first reading this about eight years ago, and I was just absolutely blown away by the connections within the Torah, within the first five books of the Bible. But if you compare Noah leaving the ark with Abraham's call, you clearly see that Moses is writing this story so that Abraham is presented as a new Noah and a new Adam. So look at this. God said to Noah, when he's leaving the ark, right here at 8.15, God said to Abraham, Go out from the ark. Go out from your land. And Noah went out. And Abram went out. And Noah built an altar for the Lord. And Abram built an altar for the Lord. And God blessed Noah. And God said to Abram, I will bless you. Be fruitful and multiply. I'll make you into a great nation. I will establish my covenant with you and your seed. I will give, uh, your, uh, I will give your seed this land. And you see, both Noah and Abraham represent new beginnings in the course of events. So you see the connections there. Moses, under inspiration, is intentionally showing parallels between earlier characters and events and later characters and events to signal to the careful reader to say, hey, I'm, I mean to show you something by the similarity of language. 
Adam was the first Adam. Noah was a new Adam figure, remember? He's with the animals, he's the blessing, he's filling the earth, he's the one righteous man, etc., etc. Uh, his world was created out of water, uh, watery chaos, so was Adam's, etc. They both sin regarding fruit. Remember that whole thing, they're very similar. They're both followed by judgment. Well, again, here, Abraham's call is pictured in parallel to Noah's. Is Abraham a new Adam and Noah figure through which God means to bring his blessing to the world? Absolutely he is. And that, that's why you see similarities there in the way it's written. Uh, verse 4 of Genesis 12, so Abraham went... As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And uh, Shriner says it very simply. The promises can be divided into three parts, offspring, land, and universal blessing. Offspring, land, and universal uh, blessing. Greg, thoughts here? Uh, before we move any further? Um, I mean, you know, we, we've stressed we got to keep this in the context of Adam. Um, but it's when you follow the, the flow of the story, you follow um, what God's doing, it's in Abraham that things start to get very specific. Yes. Um, it, it goes from just one particular genealogical line, and now you have this one individual, and through him, you've got these three amazing things, like a particular people separate from all the other peoples in the world. You've got a particular land separate from all the other places in the world someone could dwell in blessing, which is what Adam and Eve lost in the garden, what humanity's been seeking. That blessing from God that humanity needs to have is now tied to this man Abraham and his family line. And so you'll notice this as we continue to go through the scriptures um, it, it keeps narrowing. It's like a funnel. It just yep. keeps getting more specific, more specific, more specific. And so what's so important about Abraham here is that now that God is, is making these promises and making this covenant, God, the salvation that anyone can experience cannot be experienced outside, outside of Abraham and his family now. If you want to experience the salvation of God at this point in, in the history of the world, now that God's made these promises, you got to get connected to Abraham and bless him. Mm -hmm. If you don't bless Abraham, you remain separate from him. You are outside of God's salvation. You're outside of God's covenant promises. You're outside of God's people. So as God continues to narrow the promise, the way we relate rightly to God gets more and more specific. Um, obviously, we know this goes all the way to Jesus. So that if you're not in him, the true seed of Abraham, you're outside of salvation and hope and eternal life. But you see that principle even here like b before this, I mean, you've got Job, you've got an even Melchizedek that we'll see in chapter 15. Like there's a remnant of true worship of Yahweh in the world. But as God's plans are brought into clear focus, um, you're not going to see other people outside of that having genuine faith. It's now more and more uh, sp exclusively tied to this particular man and his family. Yes, and this chart, I just got this off Google, but there's a lot of different versions of this. Uh, this is very basic for the book of Genesis. Uh, if you just want to get the, the book in your mind, it, it just as a, a 30,000 foot view, the easiest way to break it down is chapters 1 to 11 of Genesis covers a couple thousand years of human history. It covers all of the human race at a bird's eye view traveling very quickly. Chapter 5 covers like 1,600 years of genealogy. Just, it's just zipping by really quickly. Uh, you have creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. It's the whole human race, 2,000 years 
period. If you look, Genesis 12 zooms in, kind of like Greg's saying here, it narrows in, it zooms in on Abraham and his family, and then the rest of Genesis, which is a whole lot longer than the first 11 chapters. Chapters 12 to 50 only covers about 250 years, way smaller amount of time. We're zooming in and slowing down, and it's only one family. It's not covering all the families of the earth. It's zooming into one family. It's Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Joseph and Judah and the other ones. So just if you want a big picture of of Genesis, those are the two parts. And the big moment right there, and of course it starts with Adam and Noah, but the big connecting part is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That promise to Abraham is really what holds those two halves of the book together. And um, just important to have that framework in mind as as we look at this book. Okay, so another quick thing here for how Genesis works, and again, I'm just taking a picture of John Salehammer here on the screen. So um, if, you, if you look at the highlighted part, a recurring theme can be traced throughout the subsequent narratives in Genesis. So this is how the drama of Genesis functions. One that is uh, first noted in the present story, that theme is the threat to God's promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. So if you want to understand the dramatic tension of the rest of Genesis and really the rest of the Bible, the question is, can God really keep that promise to Abraham to bring his seed and to bless the nations? It just seems like an impossible thing. He's barren. First block to the the promises. They cannot have children. She's about to be 90. He's going to be 100. There's no way that they can have a child. And they try to do it their own way, right? Through, through Hagar. But that's not God's way. God is going to do what he says, but there's a huge roadblock, and there's block after block after block. There's all kinds of threats to the promise of God. And the dramatic tension of, of really the whole Bible is God makes impossible promises. We, because of our sin, make the promises look even more impossible. God overcomes our sin, working it for good against all of our intentions, and God brings about the fulfillment of his promise contrary to every single expectation except for those who trust in God's character. And so that's what God's doing. Next line here in the pink part, in nearly every episode which follows, the promise of a numerous seed, uh, blessing to all families of the earth, or the gift of the land is placed in jeopardy by the actions of the characters in the narrative. The promise looks as if it will fail. In the face of such a threat, however, the narratives show that God always remains faithful to his word, and he himself enters the arena and safeguards the promise. The purpose of such a recurring narrative theme is to show that only God can bring about his promise. Human failure cannot stand in the way of God's promise. That's pretty amazingly well said, I I think. That's a great way of saying that. And uh, you know how we talked a lot last series in Providence about Joseph's famous statement, Genesis 50, 20, to his brothers. As for you, we all know this, right? By now, most of us. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I think you could apply that to basically, I mean, you could apply that to whole, whole human history. We keep undermining God's promises, and yet God keeps turning it against what we intend and fulfilling his promises. What humans meant for evil, God always uh, intends for good. And so God's promises will not fail because God is sovereign and good. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really add to that other than underscore the importance of the fact that God's promise and the success of God's promise does not rest on us. Like, you see that with these characters. If it were up to Abraham, he would have forfeited it multiple times. Okay, and I, this, this also plays into the, the quote from MacArthur that we've said, you know, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Um, if, if we could forfeit God's promises, we would. But thanks be to God, it does not depend on us. Like, we see even here the, the teaching of eternal security in the mm-hmm. sense that God, if he has made a promise 
to his people, he's going to keep that promise. He's going to keep it. So as believers in Christ, this gives us hope because if you're like me, you know how often you fall short of what you owe God. I, I do. Uh, I, I grieve at, you know, at times the, the lack of love that I have in my heart, the lack of a desire for obedience, you know, all those things. And, and so we, if we're honest, we look at ourselves and we say, man, if this were up to me, I have no, no grounds to have any hope. But it's not ultimately up to me. It's up to God who made the promise. And we see that amazingly, even here this early in Genesis 12. Amen to that. And so Genesis 12, look at verse 10. I'm just going to read kind of parts of this story. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Don't you love this line right here from Abraham? Say you are my sister, that, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Verse 17. So this, as the story goes on, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away uh, with his wife and all that he had. Now just real quick here, this story serves, I'll be honest, when, you, when we read Genesis, this is a story we tend to skip over really fast. We don't tend to focus on it. Why is this included in the narrative? And there's a couple big reasons based on what we've just talked about. Number one, does a famine potentially threaten the promise of seed and, and, and living, you know, surviving? Yes, that's a possible threat. Number two, does Abraham, does Abraham sin here in a pretty serious way? Yes, he's supposed to be the one uh, protecting and leading his wife. Instead, he basically sends his wife to go protect him. He basically lies about his wife, sends his wife to take one for him. And then now she's part of the royal harem. Is now Abraham threatening the potential of them having children? He just gave his wife to another man. Is that threatening the chance of them having kids? Yeah, it's destroying the promise of God. It looks like it, right? But God is going to over, over, you know, overrun Abraham's foolishness and sin and even stupidity here. And God is going to bring plagues and bring Sarah out and get them out of there. And God is going to bless them anyway because God will keep his promises despite even Abraham's foolishness and sinfulness. But there's a third or maybe fourth, whatever number we are. Another thing here, and I won't read all these, but this is Sailhammer again, Okay. Here we go. Salehammer says, does this story sound like another story that comes later in Genesis and Exodus? Was there a famine in the land later? And did God's people go to Egypt to get food? And while they're in Egypt, does someone treat them well because of someone else's sake, whether it's Sarah or Joseph? And at the end, does God send plague, plagues against both pharaohs? And in both stories, do the people of God get sent by Pharaoh out of Egypt with a bunch of goods and animals and extra things because the Pharaoh is sick of God's plagues? Does that happen twice? Yes. Why? Because Moses is a brilliant, genius storyteller, and what he's writing is under the inspiration of the Spirit, recounting true events, and God is saying, as God, God is saying through Moses to the people, as God acted through our forefather Abraham, so he is acting right now through the wilderness generation, which is us who this was originally written to. So don't think God's doing something new. This is the same way God acted with Abraham, and he's acting the same way with us, his seed. This is the same God keeping his same promises with the same kind of messed up and rebellious people. And so we can trust this God because he's done it before, he's doing it again. We can trust that God is faithful and good. And again, Salehammer goes on and on with all these different reasons, all the similarities uh, to see between the two stories, and you'll just see over and over and over again, there's a lot of parallels. 
Yeah. Okay, so another quick thing here before we get to the, to the real meat of the covenant, which comes in a moment. Chapter 13 of Genesis. Just to overview it really quick, we know the story is when uh, Abraham and Lot have to separate because their men are fighting. And so Abraham gives Lot the ability to choose where he wants to go. And at least Salehammer argues that even this may have been a foolish decision by Abraham because Lot could have taken the wrong part of the land and kicked Abraham out of the part that God had promised him. However you view that, God protects the land promise and keeps, thing, keeps things moving in the right direction. So let's turn to chapter 15. And Greg, can you start us in chapter 15, this uh, incredibly important chapter? How far do you want me to read? Maybe just the first, uh, first six. All right, let's do that. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So once again, Greg, we're seeing the threat to the promise because mm -hmm. he still doesn't have what? A son. He's like, okay, right now my heir is my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. This doesn't seem like what you promised me, Lord. I'm only getting older. Years are going by. We still don't have a child. What are we going to do? And he, now here's to, to Abraham's credit here, he's not perfect in this story by any means, but to his credit, he at least goes to the Lord with his doubt right here. He takes it to God. He doesn't go off and sin against God and blaspheme. He goes straight to God in prayer and he says, Lord, here's my trouble. You still haven't given me what you promised. This doesn't look like you fulfilled your promise. Please, Lord, what is the answer? What, what are you going to do for me? And, of course, the Lord promises him uh, offspring, and we get a great glimpse of, of justification by faith. So, Greg, just some other thoughts here on this section. Yeah, I mean, verse 6, y'all, is, is an amazing verse. It, um, I mean, it serves as the foundation for Paul um, in one of his major articulations of the gospel in the New Testament. Um, and why, you know, Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Because Abraham here in, in chapter 15, verse uh, 6, he believes God's promise and he's declared righteous. Circumcision is going to come in chapter 17, a little ways down the road, okay? And so what we see here is absolutely significant for our salvation because how was Abraham made righteous before the Lord? He believed what God had said. How does that come to us? I mean, think about it. We hear the gospel, and in faith, we believe God to do what he's promising in the gospel, just like Abraham believed God to do what he promised. Now, the content of what we believe is far more specific and greater than what Abram had, but the, the essence is still the same. God makes a promise, and by faith, we believe that promise, we receive that promise, and we live by it. Nothing has changed from Abram all the way until today. We're saved the same way. There is no, there's not two ways of salvation. There's not, a, you know, one and a half ways. There is one way, and it is always by faith in God, believing him to do everything he said he's going to do. That's, that's good. And I heard someone say that once we hear that Abraham, this great saint of the Bible, once we hear 
that he is justified by faith. He's counted righteous by believing in this promise of salvation through his seed, which is really the gospel in seed form. Uh, When Abraham is justified this way, we are to therefore infer that that's how anyone is going to get justified. So we know Noah trusted God. A few chapters earlier, when the flood was coming, everyone thought he was crazy, that a giant flood would come. They're probably laughing at him as he spends decades constructing a massive boat uh, in his backyard in the wilderness. They're like, what are you doing? But what, how was Noah righteous? Hebrews says it was by faith in God's promise. So the assumption is if Abraham was counted righteous by faith, then certainly Noah was counted righteous by faith. And everyone going forward is counted righteous by trusting in God's saving promise. And of course, the New Testament is going to make all these things even clearer. I don't think you can get much clearer than that verse. I mean, that is so crystal clear that he believed in the Lord. Does Abraham still sin later in the story? He gives his wife away later in the story to Abimelech. And you're like, Abraham, did we not learn the lesson here back in chapter 12? In chapter 20, this is later in the life. He gives, him, he gives away Sarah again to Abimelech and does the exact same thing. She's my sister and all that kind of thing. Does the Lord deliver? Yes, the Lord delivers. But Abraham is a flawed man. He has true faith but a flawed man. So how can he be counted righteous? It's not his righteousness. It's counted to him from another. And of course, the fullness of what that will mean will become clearer when Jesus arrives. But this is not his own righteousness that is counting him righteous. It is faith in God, and it's, it's that saving promise that is leading to him uh, being counted righteous. So let's get, let's get a little further here. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Do you hear a degree of doubt in Abraham? Like, Lord, how do I know it's really going to happen? I know you said it would happen, but how do I really know it's going to happen? So the Lord, the Lord is gracious to him. Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep uh, sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And some of you know, the, the, uh, in a few verses, we're going to hear R.C. Sproul's favorite verse in the Bible coming up in just a second. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And here it is. This is uh, R.C. Sproul's favorite verse in the Bible, Genesis 15, 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, the first time I heard that that was R.C. Sproul's favorite verse, it did not make sense to me. <laughs> I thought, did he mean another book of the Bible? <laughs> Genesis 50, that was his favorite verse of the whole Bible. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces of the dead animals. How could that be your favorite verse in the Bible? He's not kidding. This guy knows his Bible. Why would he pick this as the greatest verse? Well, Greg, why do you think he picked this? As, why is this verse in particular? Why would this be such an important verse? It's important. And um, like I, I, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of it. 
So in, in ancient customs, when they would make a covenant, like a, it, was, it was a big deal, um, one of the things they would do is in order to kind of bind, you know, we talked about covenant has like binding promises, right? Mm-hmm. That's, it's a chosen relationship in which both parties make binding promises. So if, you, if you're making a covenant with someone, you do what, what Abram did, you, you cut the animals in half, you spread it out. And so what happens is, is one party walks this way, the other party walks this way. And what are they saying? If I break my promise in this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's basically saying I'm binding myself to keep my promise and may the curse of death and being split apart come on me if I don't keep my promise. Here's what's so amazing about this. I mean, don't miss it. Who's the one who goes both ways in this covenant? It's God. Abram does not walk between these pieces. God does. God takes his promise his responsibility and Abram's like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. God's taking on responsibility for Abram in this. Yes. And so God is basically saying, if the covenant promise that I am making in any way does not come to pass, may the curses that are pronounced in this covenant fall on me. That is absolutely amazing because God obviously you know, he keeps his promises. He doesn't break his covenant. But as we're going to see, Abraham has obligations and he's not always perfect in those, though he does obey. But you think about Christ on the cross. What does he do? He himself is innocent, just like God here is. But he takes on himself the curses we deserve for our failure to obey God and honor him as we should. And so what is pictured here is it's, it's way back looking forward to the cross when God himself in Christ takes on the curses of the covenant in the place of his people. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve wrath. We deserve separation. And God says, you know what? I'm going to take it in your place. So we see that so amazingly pictured right here. God taking on the responsibility of his people. God doing that himself. Um, Even though God himself will never actually violate the covenant, his people do. His people do. And so God absorbs in himself, ultimately on the cross, all that is deserved for breaking fellowship, relationship, and covenant with God. Oh, amen. And if you want to, if you don't write your Bible, don't write your Bible. But if you want to jot this down, Jeremiah 34, 18 would be a great text to put next to Genesis 15, 17, just the reference there. And this is, this is to back up what Greg's saying. This is later in Jeremiah, but look at, look at this. It, it confirms what is being said. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, what does it say? I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So do we have crystal clear affirmation? That's actually what that meant. You cut them in half and you walk between them. And if you break the covenant, you get the same fate that the animals did that you walked between. So this is confirmed explicitly in Jeremiah. So, so don't, don't, don't forget that text. So God really is, the, the fire and the smoke represent God's presence. And Abraham's asleep. He's doing nothing when this is happening. Right. He's completely uh, out when this happens. And God passes through. And God says, I'm going to see to it that no matter what happens, mm-hmm. this covenant will be upheld. And I will keep, I will keep this promise. So we're, 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 we're winding down for today, but I, don't, I do want to say a word about Genesis 16. So look at Genesis 16 real quick, and just, just look a couple verses. Verse 1, and see if this sounds familiar, the language here. Now, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. 
She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And you hear this line, And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Verse 3, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And, when, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, that is Sarai, saw that she, the Egyptian, had conceived, she looked with contempt on uh, her mistress. Now, I, I double-checked this because I wanted to make sure. The word took there and the word gave are the exact two Hebrew words from Eve in the garden. She took the fruit and gave some to her husband. What does Sarai do? She took the Egyptian handmaid and gave to her husband. And he goes, yes. The both husbands said yes to what the wife suggested there. Verse, uh, verse 3 here, these two words are identical as well. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and that parallels Genesis 3. God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, etc. So do we see verbal connections with Adam and Eve again? Yeah, we're, are we seeing Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah, are they doing the same thing Adam and Eve did? They're, they're listening to the wrong voice, not the voice of God. In both cases, in this case, the wife is taking and giving, and the husband is happy to go along with the sin. And in both cases, they're trying to get what God has told them not to get in the way that they're, in, they're, they're trying to do the wrong thing in the wrong way. And it, here, they're trying to do what's right, they think. They're trying to produce children. They want God's promise to come about by their own human means. And God says, no, I'm not going to allow the works of the flesh to bring about the covenant promise. I'm going to allow a supernatural miracle to produce this baby in the womb of this 89-year-old woman and this 99-year-old man so that when they give birth, everyone will know the son of laughter, Isaac, came from God. This did not come from some sort of human manipulative or human manipulation. So again, do we see, is Abraham a new Adam in the good and the bad? Yeah, there's a very kind of similarity here. And so ultimately, Abraham even himself is not the final answer. It's going to be his offspring or his seed. Greg, some closing thoughts here. Um, again, just going back to the point, like if it wasn't for God ensuring that this actually happens, it would not happen. It's just, it, it's not going to. Um, I, but I, I want to make, I've thought about this a lot. Um, you know, you think in the garden, you think here and in other places, it talks about, you know, the influence of a wife on her husband. Um, we don't, you know, husbands are called to be leaders in the homes, obviously. Um, but, you know, ladies... Don't underestimate the power you have to influence your husband for good or for ill. I mean, if we're doing this right, a wife should be the husband's most cherished um, companion, voice um, in the world. Um, and so, you know, we, see, we saw in the garden and we see here a, a wife encouraging her husband to go against what God said. Um, and, and so understand what you can influence your husband to do. Like men, we are responsible for the decisions we make. Like we, it's not going to fall on our wives if, if they encourage us wrong um, and, and we choose to do it. Like it falls on us for that. And yet, you know, how powerful of an influence does a wife have in the thoughts and the decisions of her husband? And so, you know, let me just encourage ladies, realize that and pray that God will help you to only encourage your husband in godliness and in obedience, um, because you know I value my wife's opinion highly, um, like I, so highly, and she is often a more sane source of wisdom than I am. Um, so often that's the case. Um, but realize the impact you can have 
um, on, on your spouse. And I mean, that does go the other way as well, um, I think. But just recognize that, that you, you can encourage to the, right, to the right direction, you can encourage to the wrong one, and pray that God will help you do your best to always encourage in His way. That's good. And uh, <clears throat> just one, we're almost out of time. Just one last thought there. What you see in Genesis 3 with the curse and the fall, remember the gender roles were there from the beginning. Adam was created first. He names Eve. He's a, he, when God comes into the garden, he talks to Adam first because of the sin, because of his responsibility. So gender roles are there from the beginning, but they are distorted in the fall. So that, remember, the wife's desires for the husband, the husband rules over her. So you have abusive husbands and chauvinistic husbands in the, in the sinful sense, and you have wives that want to manipulate and control their husbands. Both of those are part of the fall in Genesis 3.16. And what you find is, do you see those themes being traced out already in Abraham and Sarah's marriage? Yeah, Abraham gives his wife away twice to kings. That is wicked leadership wicked leadership. And, and, and here, in this moment, uh, Sarah tries to lead her husband in the wrong direction, and he goes right along with her. So you, you see the breakdown of the way a godly marriage is supposed to be, even in the great patriarch himself here. Mm-hmm. And, and so we need redemption from, from sin, all of us do. And we need to be more like Christ in the way that he loves uh, his bride, the church. So let me, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for uh, the book of Genesis, as it just is such a foundational book to all of Scripture, and so much is contained in in seed form here, and so many things uh, grow and blossom out of the book of Genesis and all of its themes and covenants and promises. And so, God, I pray as we continue next Sunday, Lord willing, uh, and try to finish the story of Abraham then, and then eventually move on to um, the Mosaic Covenant and on from there. God, help us to see more and more clearly what Your Word is truly teaching us, and help us to submit ourselves to Your Word, to rejoice in Your Word, and to have full confidence that You're the God who always keeps his promises. So I pray you'd bless the service now in just a few minutes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.